Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jonathan Kilpatrick, soil health specialist for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today I'm joined by Jared Lumen, our soil health lead, as we talk about his journey in agriculture, his work with the Sustainable Farming Association, and his plans for the future. Welcome to Dirt Rich, Jared. Hey, thanks so much, Jonathan. It's fun to be on this side of the uh, the mic. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering how it feels to like after playing host for uh, such a good length of time. Now you're in a different different chair, but yeah, thanks for letting me have the opportunity to try my hand at uh, recording a podcast, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Yeah, yeah, you bet. No, it, it's uh it's fun to uh, have a little less pressure of having to uh, carry on the conversation. I get to shove that over to you now, and I just get to sit back and and ask what you sh- what you throw at me. So it, it should be good. <laughs> I'm looking well, we'll see it. how that goes. <laughs> It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You'll do well. Yeah. Tell our audience, um, tell our listeners what you've been up to recently. A little summary of you and your family and your farm, and you know what you do down there in southeastern Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. So people have probably heard a little bit about me over the last few podcasts, but I haven't, I don't know, I probably share little snippets and things about our farm and whatnot, but don't spend too much time talking about it. So for those who don't know, I farm with my family, my dad, uh, John, and my wife, Val, uh, down in Goodhue, Minnesota, which is about an hour southeast of the Twin Cities. We um, run about 800 acres total, and maybe 200 of those are currently in cropping acres, and the rest are either tillable acres in pasture or permanent pasture that we're running a combination of registered red Angus beef cows that we market bulls through for Farrow Cattle Company, our, our own heifers or custom grazing dairy heifers. We'll also run a few of those for a local dairy farm as well. In addition to the cow-calf enterprise, we have pastured chickens that we produce on the farm and grass-fed beef that we market uh, that will sell some of our, or will finish out some of our open heifers and sell them as grass-fed beef through our brand, Grass-Fed Cattle Company, which my wife primarily runs. That's kind of our marketing brand for food. We market grass-fed beef, pastured pork, and pastured chicken uh, through that brand, primarily to customers up in the Twin Cities, but uh, it's kind of open to anybody. We have some people that I think we've had some customers drive from Duluth down to our farm or from way out in Western Minnesota. So we have people from all over, but most of our customers are right there in the Twin Cities. So what's the history of your family's farm? I know you're farming with your dad. What's the story, the history of of the farm going back? Yeah. So that's kind of a cool story. I, I, I mean, one of my favorite things talking to people is finding out the story of their farm. And I had the opportunity to interview my dad on my other podcast, the Herd Quitter podcast, and really learn about the sto- the history of our farm. And it's kind of a cool story. Back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, my grandpa was in a partnership with his brother, Nick. And they were, for the time, very progressive, kind of conventional, large-scale commodity uh, farmers. They, in the 80s, were milking close to 200 cows, I think, and had like 150 or so beef cows. They were selling Simmental genetics. They were uh, very large frame, big genetics, uh, beef genetics. And then they had a registered sheep herd uh, as well, a couple hundred ewes in their flock. And I think they farmed close to a thousand acres at one point and stuff too. And from what I understand and have heard about that farm at that time is it was so much labor. Like they had, like, again, my grandpa, his brother, both their wives, all their kids. They had several foreign exchange students. All the locals were coming out and helping make hay. There was so much labor, so much work. And 
I don't know the year exactly, but we had a foreign exchange student come out to the farm uh, who kind of told my dad and my grandpa, you guys are working way too hard. You're 15 years behind us over in New Zealand. He was from New Zealand. He said, you guys are behind us. And I don't know why you work you know, so hard and you do all this stuff. And you know, a lot of farmers uh, could have taken offense to that, I think. And I just give my grandpa so much props for uh, hearing that. And instead of taking offense, he said, you know, maybe we should figure out what he's talking about. And so he told my dad, you should go over to New Zealand and see what, mm. see what this guy is talking about. And, uh, and so my dad spent eight months in New Zealand working on a couple of different operations there. There was a grazing dairy, there was a beef, sheep and wow. deer station, which before that, I didn't realize there were places that raised deer. Uh, but he did that uh, and spent eight months over there exploring and working mm. and learning very much a grazing, a low input grazing based production system. And I would say that was the big kind of turning point for our farm's history as to when we started to do things differently. And so there's a lot of people my age who are wanting to try some of these things and have to fight with their parents to let them try something different. And I guess I was fortunate that this is all I've ever known. Uh, in the 80s, when my dad graduated uh, from college, or the late 80s, early 90s, he he moved home and started his own dairy farm, uh, maybe five miles away from home and in, in all grazing dairy. And when he uh, took over the family farm in 2000, my grandpa was ready to slow down. He sold that dairy and kind of did a lot of grazing, increased the beef herd, focused on low input grass genetics, and then some organic cropping as well. And instead of focusing on scaling, he focused on doing things well with low inputs and selling at a premium price. And I'd say that's kind of been the story of his life and, and leading up to where we are now, which is most everything we sell is uh, somehow valued at a premium and tried to produce at low cost as well. Wow. That's quite quite an interesting story, like quite a testament to your dad being willing to go over to another country, go to New Zealand for that length of time. Like, um, what age we did, would he have been? And I guess there must have been support that was backing yeah. him up to help at home. Yeah. So he did that one in between his sophomore and junior year of college. He went to University of Wisconsin River Falls for two years and then took uh, some time off. And I, I might get this wrong, but I think he said back then there were trimesters instead of semesters. So he took spring semester off and then the following fall semester off. And he spent those, you know, that whole chunk of time over in New Zealand. And it was a, I'm sure he missed out on a busy season on the farm at home, but like yeah. they would been used to hiring people. So I'm sure they just found some more locals. Um, my dad always talks about back in the day when everyone had all the kids and all, you know, it was almost just like a, a community of sharing labor and stuff between the kids and families on different farms. So I'm sure they found a way to get by without him. But that, like you, you're saying, I mean, that's where I really give props to my grandpa and, and my dad, but to my, my grandpa for, not taking offense to seeing the value of seeing something different and willing to sacrifice, giving up his son's labor for, you know, eight plus months and, and encouraging him to go over and experience that. And I think that's something I hope that uh, I never, I never overlook an opportunity, a learning opportunity for future kids or something for the, uh, the maybe short-term benefit of having their labor around the place in the meantime. Well, it sounds like that experience really changed the trajectory of your farm. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So build a bridge from, from then to now, you know, that experience was obviously pivotal seeing the, you know, grazing mm -hmm. systems in New Zealand. So what, what got him from there to what you're doing now with, you know, you're doing some organic cropping and transitioning a lot yeah. of it to perennial pastures and 
and focusing more on mm-hmm. the grazing side of the operation, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. So when he got back from New Zealand, that's when he started his dairy. He, again, the craziness of the times, it was kind of good timing and that he got into it in the late, in, I think, 89. So right after the 80s farm crisis, and he bought an 80 acre farm with a house and a milking parlor and a barn, and he had to do some work to it, but for like 75 grand <laughs> today, that would be, you know, a million dollar place. Oh. And so it's a, uh, you know, kind of good timing as far as getting into it. Sure. But then he, he right away started with this low input grazing model and at one rented some neighboring farms and was milking up to a little over a hundred cows, I want to say for about a decade or a little over a decade. And that's when my grandpa was ready to slow down on the home farm, which was five miles away. And he went from, and, and that's where he kind of sold and stopped renting those 200 acres over there. And, and, uh, and took over the home farm and was farming a little over 500 acres, I want to say, mm-hmm. at that point. And the home farm didn't have the milking infrastructure. I, I didn't mention that between the 80s when we had that foreign exchange student, my grandpa and his uh, brother split up the farm partnership. And so my grandpa was farming separately from his brother at that point. And his brother kind of had the original farm with the milking set up. And so when dad came home to the home farm, he no longer had a you know, a dairy setup or milking parlor and infrastructure for that. So he'd contemplated milking and I, uh, <laughs> I, I think he maybe would have liked to, but it would have been a lot of work and, and didn't really fit the situation at the time. And so we didn't, and I never really thought ever about milking again until as of late with some of the SFA work I've been doing, meeting some of the awesome folks through SFA who are doing dairying really well. So as of late, I've been thinking more about it, but it, I don't think it ever really was too serious of a contemplation on the home farm. And so he, he, that dairy really is a high mart or a high gross revenue business. A lot of money flows through a business, but when you go to a commodity coming to a farm where if you want to, there was only 500 acres. And if you want to be producing a commodity, you kind of need more acres. So he, he really realized early on, he had to do something different to make a go of it with 500 acres, especially with his grandpa still trying to draw an income out of the farm and hoping that someday, you know, he'd have some kids coming back. And so Mm -hmm. he, he first tried sheep, beef cattle and sheep, and he got out of sheep pretty quickly. I think four years, uh, he was done. That was a lot of work, a lot of stress, and it didn't work out for him. And I think there's things that we've learned since then that we could maybe have changed to make it work, but that he got out of that pretty quick. And kind of the two main enterprises he focused on was organic crops, organic row crops, and then uh, beef cows. And uh, the organic row crops provide a pretty significant premium over conventional crops consistently. And that allowed him to generate revenue, you know, a, a net profit per acre that almost no other enterprise can compete with. And then the grazing uh, he sought out, well, he didn't intentionally, he was still marketing genetics uh, like his dad was before him, uh, just bulls off the farm, but got connected with Kit Farrow and and we've really grown and, and partnered with Kit Farrow and kind of market bulls through them and grown our cow-calf enterprise with that as well. That's really neat. So somewhere along the way, you came along and then, you know, you're to where you are today. So tell the story, yeah. maybe just an overview of growing up on the farm in that in that context, and then what led you to work for SFA? Yeah. So I grew up on the farm and my perspectives have totally changed. When I grew up, I wanted nothing to do with the cattle. My least favorite days were working cattle. I, I thought it was just stupid amount of work. You have to work with them every day where a crop you don't have to. And I love sitting in a tractor, listening to the radio and air conditioning. And I thought, I was like, you know, dad, I get it. 
you like your cows, but when I'm running this farm, they're going to be gone. <laughs> I think I remember telling him those kinds of things. And so that was when I grew up. That's how I grew up. I love the the farming and the tractor side of it. But it wasn't actually until in, I was at, I went to school at the University of Minnesota as well, kind of followed my dad's footsteps there. And in the fall of 2014, I had the opportunity to purchase some cows from another cooperative producer and feral cattle company and kind of start my own herd. And I had kind of come to realize by that point, whether I like the cows or not, that we have a lot of pasture ground that really can't be tilled and we're always going to have some cows. So I might as well accept it and buy into it and start figuring it out. It's <laughs> kind of the mindset I had at that time. Yeah. And uh, while figuring it out and it just learning to accept it, I really began to love the, not just the cows, the cows are cool, but probably even more so than my love of the cows is my love of managing land in a perennial pasture-based system and uh, and seeing what man- well-managed livestock on land can do. It's incredible and it's beautiful and it feels right. It feels like it's how <laughs> this land was supposed to be managed. And so ever since then, I graduated again in 2015, spring of 2015, I've kind of been trying to push towards moving this direction towards more cattle, more perennial pasture. And it doesn't have to be cow-calf. That's kind of why we brought on the dairy heifers was to look at another enterprise that maybe doesn't have quite as much overhead or equity tied up in those cows that has a little more flexibility that we don't have to feed through the winter. So we brought those in. Um, I've been looking at sheep again and dairy, you know, back at dairy again and stuff like that. I've really been just trying to find out how can we match the profitability or, or get really good profitability off of perennial pastures that can maybe even, you know, ideally would compete with the organic crops because, you know, the more we've learned about soil health, that was kind of another thing. Since when I got home, I was a, kind of like my grandpa pushed my dad. My dad pushed me to attend a lot of these soil health events put on by organizations like the Sustainable Farming Association and other ones, you know, get out to these events, learn what people are doing. And as we learn more about soil health, and you know read books and listen to podcasts we learn more about how destructive tillage is to our soil mm. and organic cropping in the way that we currently do it depends a lot on tillage for weed control yep. and so we've been just trying to get away from that but again at the end of the day the organic cropping has net profits that just almost no other enterprise can compete with so that's kind of the challenge we're dealing with now is trying to balance how do we meet the profit goals that we need to have on this farm to have multiple generations running on a farm that's expanded slightly to 800 acres but is still relatively small for a multi-generational farm yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so as the cattle grew in the cropping side maybe shrunk a little bit that freed up some time and then an opportunity for you to look for off-farm employment. Is that kind of what led to working for Sustainable Farming Association? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, you asked that question. I forgot to tie it into SFA. But yeah, it was like three years ago or something that we decided like, okay, we want to get away from organic cropping. Maybe let's try and move more towards perennial pasture. We can maybe give up a little bit of profit per acre. But We'll be able to manage your land well. And also because it doesn't really take any more work to manage two or 300 cows as it did 150 cows, it won't really add that much to our work. And so if we're not adding that much to our work and we're actually subtracting our work because we're reducing the organic cropping acres, the thought was maybe we don't need two full-time people around the farm anymore. And my dad owning the farm and being young yet had no necessarily wasn't ready to back out of the farm. 
understandably. And so I looked for kind of work and I looked at a few things in college. I interned with a seed company and, you know, looked at that and that didn't really feel like it right or something I wanted to do. But I saw my dad shared with me an email where he saw that SFA was hiring a soil health lead. And so that as I've been, had been learning and what I've been seeing that really kind of aligned with what I wanted to do. So um, applied and got that job and I've spent the last three years working with SFA managing like kind of working with the some of our other uh, staff doug and kent and and now you to help farmers implement soil health principles largely grazing has been what i've specialized in i would say or what i've more focused my my work on i guess to carry on the conversation of working with sfa we kind of realized over the years too the last three years we picked up a few hundred more acres of pasture um and so our cow herd hasn't kept up with that and so we've taken some of our tillable pasture acres back into crops and so the work never really did slow down on the farm i guess is what my point is it never really did slow down as much as we hoped and so i found myself too busy on the farm and so now i've slowed back down again at sfa but that's what i had been doing and how we kind of worked into the sfa decision yeah that makes sense so if i have my timeline correct you came on post pandemic post covid era is that Right in 2020. Right in the middle. Yeah, June 2020 okay. is when I started. So <laughs> yeah. describe your work when you started with Sustainable Farming Association, then what it's morphed into now or changed, adapted to now and what you're doing currently. When I started, it was kind of an interesting thing. We had SFA, the organization, had been growing quite rapidly in funding and work and we were getting quite busy. And so a lot of the work that I was doing was kind of fulfilling grants that had been written by the previous staff and previous executive director and stuff. And we did some uh, soil health testing and consulting with some farmers around Minnesota. That was a pretty cool experience. Uh, One of the first things I got to do, which was an awesome onboarding project, was write the set of soil health case studies that Mm. I'm pretty proud of. I really, I thought they're some awesome farmers that I got to share their stories. And so I was getting paid essentially to drive around and visit with awesome farmers around the state and share their stories, which was a really cool opportunity for me to learn and also to be able to do. Yeah. And those, those case studies are still very popular. Yeah. Like they, yeah. they'll fly off a, a table at an event that we're tabling at or whatever. Yeah. People yeah. received a lot of um, good compliments about those. So yeah, just lots of good lots of good stories there for sure. Yeah. Um, good people. Uh, yeah. Not, not credit to my writing, but credit to their stories and what they're doing. So that was, that was a really great way to get started. The work, I spent way too much time on zoom calls those first year, year and a half. Oh my goodness. If I um, were on zoom right now, but if I never had another zoom call, that would be too many. So, uh, that was, that was a long year and a half of zoom calls, but yeah. And then planning events, field days, summer field days, those were really cool because again, that was what got me into all of this in the first place. When I got home from college where I learned a ton was these field days and network built networks from those field days. And so that was a really fun part of my job. And then our winter events, like the one we just wrapped up uh, a couple of weeks ago here was our Midwest soil health summit, just a lot of fun. So, um, yeah. And I guess what is more, I also did a lot of these podcast interviews and that was a fun part of it. Winter webinar series, kind of anything and everything, just trying to spread the word of soil health and regenerative farming yep. uh, to our members around Minnesota. And it's morphed today to, again, where I'm moving back home to farm more and have backed down my workload for SFA pretty significantly. So what would you say was your favorite part of the job as soil health lead? Yeah. And 
how do you feel like you made the most impact? Hmm. Well, any time that I could get around farmers and the more farmers, the better. So I always enjoy the big events. I talk about, you know, again, how important that was to me and in, in my learning. And, and I would say my impact, I don't have as much to share as some of our, you know, really experienced farmers. And so while we spent time on farms and I really enjoyed getting to dig in into the details with some of these farmers on their operations, I think a lot of the value is just helping share stories that otherwise wouldn't be told in those case studies. Those farmers don't have the connection to our thousand plus, I don't know, you know, how many members we have probably are, you know, uh, members across the state. They never would have reached if we hadn't been able to somehow share their story with them through a field day, a case study, a podcast, a webinar. And so right. um, that's, that's pretty cool to know that we get to help share stories that otherwise would never be told or heard outside of their own circles. That's really interesting. So where do you see yourself in five years in your farming career? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, in five years, I probably won't have much involvement with SFA at all anymore. The hope is definitely to get more and more involved on the farm. We've got a lot to figure out here in the next few years, just with like transition wise and figuring out what my dad's role will be and my role will be. And that's a kind of a challenging thing. I know a lot of people have to are figuring that out as their farm transitions. And so uh, hopefully in five years, we'll have a lot more clarity on that. And also here in the last couple, the last year or so, we've been really trying to get better at our financial and economic analysis of our different enterprises. And so my hope is in five years, if there was one word I had to say of what our farm will, where we'll be is a lot more clarity, I guess. Hopefully we have a more clarity on the direction of my role in the farm and the direction of my dad's and the direction of mm-hmm. the enterprises mix, like what enterprises generate good revenue and and which ones don't and, and what's that going to look like. We're excited that having gone to this ranching for profit school, we've got the tools to help figure these things out a lot better I would say than we did even a year ago and we haven't figured them out yet, but we know we have the tools to figure them out. And so the next couple of years will be a, uh, a slow, but hopefully good, you know, progression of getting just clarity on, on the direction of a lot of things. But I would anticipate that very much so grazing will be a big part of our enterprise mix. We have, like I said earlier, we have a lot of pasture that will only be pasture. And so it will always be a part of our mix. And whether or not the tillable ground is all in perennial pasture or not, I'm not sure. But I would also say I hope to move away from the current model of organic cropping that we're doing now, just because I just hate how much tillage we depend on. And so whether that's finding a way to do no-till organic consistently, there's some farmers doing that further south. And if we can figure out a way to do that, that would be phenomenal. But if not, maybe that's moving more towards a conventional but no-till, regenerative, cover cropping type crop enterprise on those tillable acres. But I really want to focus on building this farm soil base and, and everything for future generations that, I mean, the Soil Health Summit, we had Dave Brandt talk about how much he's done in a matter of a short few years. And that's exciting. I'm ready to start moving moving the needle and, and I hope we can. Yeah, that was a great, great presentation. Yeah. So um, rewinding a little bit, you mentioned your your dad and grandpa um, obviously had profound impacts on your formative years and in learning about farming and getting to where you are now. So is there someone else that you would say has taught, has been a profound influence in your career profession up until now? Yeah. 
It's a good question because I saw that question and some of the ones you had sent me and I thought, well, that'll be easy. I'll just talk about my dad. But now you've said an exception and, and beyond my dad. So, uh, I mean, what I would have to say, whether it's not been in person, I've not met him in person, but Clay Connery in the Working Cows podcast, he shares phenomenal resources on that and stories. And that's been, that was a huge one, huge one for me. I've learned a ton through that podcast. There's a neighbor of ours that is the guy we graze corn stalks on, Trevor, and he's a like very not afraid at all to experiment with things around no-till cropping and and cover crops and stuff. He jumped all in on that and this regenerative crop farming. And as we start to experiment more with some of that stuff, he's been I've already you know been on phone calls with him regularly and stuff. And so I'd say he's a really big resource on the cropping side. Kit Farrow has been a good one, you know, kind of a mentor to learn from on the cattle genetics and production models side there. Yeah. Those are a few that come to mind. All fabulous folks to learn from. And interesting, uh, it sounds like a podcast was a source of, obviously there's someone behind the podcast, but the podcast is a source of a lot of information. And I think, I think you're right. I've, I've learned a lot from so many mentors that don't even know their mentors yeah. to me, but it's coming <laughs> through a podcast or a book or sure. something like that. So yeah. Just, you never know who you're impacting. Oh, it was, I remember where I was when I heard what podcasts were for the first time. I was at a wedding and it was Rob Sexton, a friend of mine who told me that he listens to this podcast on the way to work. And I was like, what in the heck is a podcast? And well, when I figured it out, I downloaded the app and I started just searching in there, cows, cattle, ranch, farm, and like downloading every podcast. And when I realized all the hours that I could, I had spent in a tractor or in a pasture, like listening to my own thoughts or listening to a radio that I could be spending those hours, like hours every day, listening to some genuine, like good information and education. I know that is life changing. Like, I mean, it's way more than you can ever get from a college classroom, you know, every day, all day. I mean, it's, it's totally, and there's definitely sometimes I just have to shut it off because my brain is thinking too much. But uh, if you can spend the time that you otherwise would spend doing nothing, thinking or doing something, but not in your mind anyway, right. Uh, listening and learning. Yeah. Gosh, got to be one of the best resources out there. <laughs> yeah. Especially for those who are doing a lot of work with their hands and they can listen mm-hmm. while they work, you know, farmers, yeah. you know, I stick yeah earbuds in and mm-hmm. get on the tractor and away you go. So sure. yeah, I clearly remember where I was when I first listened to working cows and I, and I found out about working cows through Kit Farrow's emails. And oh, nice. yeah, I remember I was outside building a gate and <laughs> listen to my first episode and just away we went. Yep, so booked. I think that's how I found out about you too. <laughs> yeah, so funny, kind of, kind of crazy, the networking that can happen through podcasts. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. For sure. So one thing I've been thinking about is maybe a question to ask you, what is one idea or thing in agriculture, or we could just say organic farming, regenerative agriculture, soil health. I don't know. You pick that you think the majority of us get wrong. Like what are we, potentially focused on that we Hmm. shouldn't be or what are your some some thoughts on some things i would say they kind of go together here but one would be in something that i i'm not sure i'm not in the minds of these people but a lot of people i think push back on regenerative soil health principles and regenerative farming practices because they think either a that that goes against profitability for some reason and that you know, if you do that, 
you're giving up profitability for the point of building soil. And, you know, we'd love to build soil, but I'm not willing to give up profitability. We're a business first kind of a mindset. And I think lots of people prove like it's getting more and more proved that they can go hand in hand. Absolutely. They do. There's no reason you can't build soil and that that can't make you more profitable and reduce inputs and all these things. So it absolutely, yeah, it, it can. And kind of along those lines, maybe is that it's not just something for the small hippie organic crop farmers like me or whatever. I mean, uh, I was, I always joke with people, my dad, he raised me to be different. So I never had a, it was always, I was always used to be different. I grew up in a country where everyone is like a Ford and Chevy pickup trucks and their John Deere or case tractors and their feedlot beef and commodity corn. And we had a McCormick tractor instead of a John Deere. And we had a Toyota pickup truck and grass-fed beef and organic crops. We were the weird ones, but uh, regenerative, regenerative farming practices can be for any farm and can be implemented in any context. They might be implemented differently, slightly. The principles might be implemented differently in different contexts, but these aren't things you, you don't have to like think, well, I'm 4,000 acres. I can't do that on my farm or something like that. Or I'm a big dairy. Those things don't work here. I have to knife uh, in my manure or something. So I have sure. to do tillage or whatever, or I'm a sugar beet farmer. So no, that's too bad. I can't do that or something. How we implement it might be differently, but these practices are implementable. If that's a word, implementable, uh, applicable, that's maybe the better word in any context uh, and, right. and should be applied in any context, not just for the soil's benefit, but for their business's benefit and their lifestyle benefit. Imagine if you didn't have to spend you know, an extra two or three passes across the farm with doing tillage passes and you could reduce your fertilizer bill by, you know, X percentage and all these different benefits that would mean real, you know, real benefits to their bottom line. That's the exciting part that, uh, that this provides. So. Sure. So let me just paint the picture here. If, if we've got a seesaw, maybe what you're saying is on one side of the seesaw is soil health and the other side is farm profitability, financial viability. What you think a lot of people are getting wrong is that there's no middle ground. You can't meet in the middle and balance the two out that some folks would say that they're, they don't, they don't go together on the same farm. That's kind of what you're saying, I think. Yeah. Well, just, yeah, exactly. An assumption that, uh, if we want to be truly good and, and, and I think every farmer is doing the best that they know how, and that they don't think they're being destructive to their soil. I don't ever want to get that, you know, idea or sentiment across. I think that's one of the biggest problems soil health faces is that there have been people in the past that paint large-scale farmers or other farmers as the problem they say you're the reason why we have all these problems and i don't want to come across that i think we're all doing our best um but i think we all can probably do better too (laughs) and uh and and so i uh I I don't want that to be, you know, that's not a, I'm better than you or you're worse than me kind of a thing. It's just, we all can do better. And when we get past the, the idea that either a, we're not calling you the bad guy uh, and it'd be, uh, this can be beneficial to you. I hope that moves everything along. So. Right. Yeah. We all uh, breathe the same air and drink the same water. So it's needs to be a collective effort yeah. to move the needle forward. So what would you say is a impactful way or a way to help someone through that barrier if they're if they're working through a barrier like that you know examples or maybe some experience and how those two things aren't exclusive well i think everybody 
can just try things. The best way to, I don't think there's any better teacher than experience. I've seen that. Yeah, I don't know. I spent years <laughs> looking at rental properties as like something I wanted to do, but I was too scared to do for whatever reason. I listened to podcasts. I read books and it wasn't until I finally just did it that I was like, gosh, I learned more in the first couple of months and leasing out that first property and stuff than I have in the years of listening to books and reading books and listening to podcasts and all that stuff and talking to people who did it. So just experience is the best teacher. And so, but that experience doesn't have to be the whole farm. I talked about that neighbor that we, we talked to a lot, Trevor, he kind of did. I, I'm pretty sure when he decided to go no-till, he sold the uh, tillage equipment. He went 100% on like 1,500 acres in year one wow. on really wet, heavy ground. And, and that's probably not how I'd recommend it. Um, <laughs> we're uh, on our farm this year. We're doing our first trial of no-till conventional cropland. We're going to you know, do cover crops on every acre, 100% no-till. And we're picking, in this particular situation, two fields on our farm that last few years have been extremely weedy and we know we probably can't put them back into organic crops and expect you know a good crop without weed pressure for a long right. time and so if we're ever going to try it on some of our cropland this would be the try you know the time to do it and those would be the acres to do it and so we're going to try it and the hope being that if we like it we can either expand it across our farm or if we ever pick up more acres we can figure it out but right now it's almost like scary if say we pick up have the opportunity to rent another couple hundred acres but it's not certified and we need to run it conventionally. And I have no experience. That's kind of terrifying. But if we can try small scale here, 50 acres to figure it out, hopefully we can learn a lot and move forward. And and a lot of that, one of the bigger arguments that I hear against trying something at small scale is I don't have the equipment to do it. And for me to buy the equipment to try it on a 40 acre piece or an 80 acre piece or whatever, doesn't make sense. But mm -hmm. there's probably someone in almost every neighborhood with the equipment you need to do it, whether that's a no-till drill or a right. uh, strip till bar or uh, you know a cedar air cedar or whatever it is or something like that there's somebody out there probably with the equipment uh, to do it and you can more than most of these guys that are doing this are excited about what they're doing and want others to do it too so they'll probably even help you and do a you know a reasonable custom rate for year one to just give it a shot and if it works then you can look at buying equipment but you don't have to right off the bat and someday, if you ever do get to scaling this across the farm, all of the equipment that you'll be able to sell by not doing you know, whatever you were doing can help you invest in the equipment you need for the new operation. So. Right. Yeah, I think that that point is a good one. A safe to fail trial or, mm -hmm. you know, do do 20 acres in the back 40 where yeah. you don't have to worry about what the neighbors are saying if they drive by and it doesn't work the way you'd hoped or what the what someone's PowerPoint presentation at some conference looked like, you know, yeah. it's going to take some, some work and adapting to your context to do that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, along those lines, do you have a, a story of a failure or maybe an apparent failure mm -hmm. that spurred you on to some later success or, you know, had a bad situation here, but it set you up for success somewhere? Yeah. Well, one that comes to mind is the first time we, we tried late winter grazing with sorghum sedan grass. I don't know if it was a learn that spurred us to more success, but it learned, <laughs> we learned <laughs> anyway, that one year we tried putting quite a few acres into sorghum sedan grass that we were going to graze after the corn stalks were buried in snow and ice. We were going to graze corn stalks as late as we can and then switch to sorghum sedan grass. The idea being that it's taller, it'll stand up in the snow and the cows will be able to eat it later into winter. And uh, 
by the time that we were done on corn stalks, the snow and the ice had pulled down the sorghum and it had buried it in the sorghum, mm-hmm. the sorghum in it anyway. And so the cows were able to graze some, but a very small portion of the sorghum that was there. And so when you have a lot of expense going into a sorghum sedan crop and expect to get 150 plus cow days per acre and you get 30 cow days mm. per acre, now that expense, instead of being divided over 150, call it 400, call it $300 an acre or whatever that you put into it. You get $300 an acre, you divide that by 150 cow days, that's $2 per cow day to feed a cow on the sorghum. But now it got to 30 cow days per acre because it was all buried in snow and ice. And so now you get to divide those $300 divided by 30 cow days per acre, and that's $10 per cow day. And that's really expensive cow feed. Mm. <laughs> and so we we <laughs> yes. learned at that point, we didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> um, so now we've kind of shifted our operation to where we use our perennial pastures and our sorghum sedan grass. We kind of optimize them to get us until we can get onto corn stalks. And as soon as we can get onto corn stalks, we graze corn stalks as late as we can. And once we're off corn stalks, we go to bale grazing hay. That's just kind of been our learning experience. We still want to figure out how to graze later. And the thing that we're hoping, I, I, I have no idea. And I keep thinking every time I talk to somebody about this, that I need to call the guy, but I, I got the phone number of a guy in Wisconsin who's wind road and he rakes together swaths of corn stalks and he's been able to graze, I guess, into March. And if I need to talk to him and if we can find a way to do that and graze into March on corn stalks, that would be a huge game changer. So really hoping that that turns into something. That is intriguing. Yeah. Do you, down where you're at, you're, you're part of Minnesota. Do you get a lot of wind down there? Um, yes. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Okay. A lot of drifting and stuff, but it seems like what I'm hoping anyway, is like when we go out and see where the cows are grazing on corn stalks, the guy who he, he has a, well, the corn header, there's, there's the actual stalks that stick up out of the ground, maybe 10 inches, 12 inches or something like that. And then all the leaves and all the stuff that the cattle eat, the leaves and everything are laying flat on the ground. And the corn or the the drifts and the wind blows snow and it seems to kind of level out at the height of those stalks that are sticking 10 to 12 inches up into the air. And my hope is that if we can rake these windrows together and they're 12, 24 inches high of corn stalks, that the same thing will happen and the snow will blow the corn and fill in the gaps between the windrows. But then the windrows will only be, instead of buried in 12 to 24 inches of snow, they'll they'll be able to access the, the windrows of corn stalks just you know an inch or two of snow dusting on top and if they can do that if they can just break through it and they know it's down there i've seen them dig through crazy stuff if they know it's there so i'm hoping that that can be a game changer yeah yeah that's, that'd be interesting i we get a lot of wind up here so i feel like you'd see them start blowing away but i don't know again you're not going to know until you try it and i think it's intriguing enough of an idea and the potential feed savings that you're going to realize but could be game changer so yeah I'm not so worried about them necessarily blowing away because partly like the ground isn't till black there's all the uh, there's again all those stalks sticking up that kind of catch the wind and catch the True. stuff so i'm hoping yep. that'll kind of keep it in place we'll see it'll be a learning experience and maybe it'll be a flop and we'll realize that we just we just have to feed hay more than we want but we've already and i will say like just by grazing corn stalks this year was, was it was a rougher year we we, we finished grazing corn stalks around december 15th but the previous three years prior to this, we've grazed until January 20th or later. And considering when most people in our area start feeding hay, probably around October 1st, some earlier than that. I mean, we've saved all of October, November, December, and 15 days in January. Wow. So that's 105 days of feeding that we're probably saving over a dollar per day in feed costs um, 
So that's a huge savings already. So that's a huge savings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it's it's definitely worth worth a trial because that that could yeah. be that could be huge <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. So and then something we have in an abundance in crop country that is currently going a lot unutilized. So. Right. Yeah. Use that waste stream from one enterprise to fuel another one. For sure. So that's the hope. Great. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a couple more questions here. We're going to start wrapping up. Sure. But there's a well-known book out there by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And I think a good question to ask is why do you farm? Yeah. I, I've heard that. It's, it's an interesting question. There's lots of reasons why. And some of the noble answers might be there's something fulfilling about feeding the world and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, probably the biggest reason is it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Um, everything I get to do, you know, work out on the land, uh, see God's creation in a way that so many people will never have the experience of. We're truly blessed. It was pretty cool. And my wife and I were on vacation a few weeks ago, and I think of how many people coming home from vacation just dread going back to work the next day. And mm. I was excited leaving paradise uh, pretty much, you know, the beaches, right. uh, coming back to Minnesota in the middle of winter. And I was like looking forward to getting back to work. And that I thought I'm a pretty lucky person that I enjoy my work so much that I am looking forward to leaving vacation for that. And so that doesn't maybe say why, but it just says that it is enjoyable. But then there's, yeah, there's, there are the other, it is cool to be able to produce food for people. It's cool to be able to work with your family and it's, yeah, it's rewarding work. Wow. Yeah, that's good. So along the same lines, would you say that, is that what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning or is there some other driving force that motivates you to get up and get after it every day? Yeah. Well, a lot of days and most days I would say it's fun. There's definitely days where it's the fun isn't enough, but then there's just the responsibility of knowing there's live animals depending on you to get out and do it. Um, (laughs) And so (laughs) that's, yeah, the other day, I mean, just two days ago, we had the water freeze completely and the cows were not very happy. And so we had guests coming over and so had to deal with those problems. And the day before that, I had a flat tire on the tractor and we had guests coming over that night and stuff too. And it's like, man, some things just never go right when you want them to go right and stuff. But uh, overall, sounds like only when guests are coming over for dinner that you have problems. That's right. right. Yeah. It seems to be that way. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, Jared, you had a session at annual conference. This is a Mm -hmm. little bit of a a segue. We're going to we're going to do another episode with Jared. So stay tuned, all of our listeners. Something that you have really honed in on, at least that I've experienced in in working with you is uh, farm profitability and knowing your numbers and you're mm-hmm. really good with spreadsheets and running numbers. So give us a little bit of an overview. You had a session at annual conference talking about farm profitability that was very popular yeah. um, based on a lot of the survey results. So Give us a little overview and uh, then stay tuned in a couple of weeks. We'll be releasing another episode with Jared on farm profitability. So yeah, Jared, take it away. Yeah. So I I wouldn't consider myself yet an expert at this. It's something we're trying to figure out on our own farm, but it's just a really good handle on your numbers and, and analysis of your different enterprises and knowing which enterprises are making you money and which ones aren't. Um, and it's not easy to know if we're not looking at the numbers because at the end of the year you kind of just look at the bottom do i have enough cash to pay the bills and there's a big difference between cash flow and profit and so right. what i've been really interested in and just trying to figure out is defining that difference between cash flow and profit and helping producers understand 
what is their true profit on an enterprise and which enterprises are maybe not making them profit, um, but they don't see because they don't look at an enterprise analysis and it's actually holding back their enterprise, their, their farm as a whole. Um, and I think it's just a, yeah, an important topic that, and, and it's teach to decide how important profit, if they have enough cash flow to live on, maybe they don't need to be a truly profitable enterprise and that's fine. But it's, if, if you're trying to grow a business or bring a kid back into the business or something like that, a lot of times there can be some pretty big, some pretty simple little changes that can make some pretty big impacts on your farm profitability and, uh, just takes digging in deep. So, yeah. Right. No, I think it's really important. I just had a conversation with a friend the other day and we were talking about his farm and I kind of posed the question to him, you know, what, what are you going to do with your profit? You know, let's start with how much profit do you want to make? And I think that was a, yeah, like a light bulb moment for him. Mm-hmm. A lot of people view profit as, well, I'm going to pay myself with a profit. Well, that's not really the term. That's not really a correct definition for profit. So anyhow, yeah. uh, next time on Dirt Rich, we'll dive into that a little bit more with Jared. Yeah. We'll, we'll get more into the farm profitability numbers and, and all that good stuff. So uh, Jared, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with today? Uh, check out SFA for all those events that we have put that we'll put out on the summer. They'll be on the events calendar and stuff. Those are those are such great opportunities, not only to learn things, but to meet people. And you may not pick up a single thing at the event, but you'll meet half a dozen people that you'll learn infinite things from. So and you'll make good friends. And so check that out. Um, That's right. Yeah. Don't be afraid to try something different because your neighbors might think you're weird. Maybe raise your kids with Toyota pickup trucks and McCormick tractors and train them to be the odd ones in the country. And it'll be better in the long Definitely. run. But yeah. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jared. Uh, Jared Lumen, Soil Health Lead for Sustainable Farming Association. Thanks for joining me on Dirt Rich today. And we'll uh, talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.